0: The Ball Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show, brought to you with West Yorkshire Electrical, wyelectrical.co.uk uh, for details of a fully qualified electrician, specialists in all things electrical. If it has wires, they will work with it. They do specialise as well in renewables, so we're talking solar panel installation, battery storage, uh, EV chargers, all the usual stuff as well, school contracting, fire alarm systems, CCTV, LED installation, and finance available for work on your home or your business. Fully accredited, as I mentioned, wyelectrical.co.uk for details. Phil, good morning. Our Monday morning debrief, um, you and I, another win for Leeds.
1: How many is that on the bounce now at home? Is it what, six or seven? Seven, seven, seven on the spin. It's been fun this season, isn't it? The Monday debriefs are a total contrast to how they were last season when um, we were dragging ourselves in because we, we kind, of, kind of had to. This is good form, like seriously good form. I think it was um, Andrew Daunt went back through the stats before Saturday's game and was pointing out that um, seven games, seven wins on the spin at Ellen Road, you look into 2009, the last time that happened, when Leeds were kind of in the wilderness of of League One. And and prior to that, the David O'Leary era, which tells you how infrequently it happens, I think more than anything, underlines the fact that this season, Leeds wanted, uh, in the form of a head coach, but also in the form of a squad, People who understood the division, knew what the division was like, knew the sort of football that worked in the league, um, knew the, fo- the sort of football that they would come up against in the league. And I think they've they've ticked the boxes on on almost every front. Um, they're looking extremely strong. They seem to have the measure of, of most of the sides they're playing against, certainly at, at Ellen Road. I think if you're being totally fair about it and totally objective, you have to say that they haven't played a huge number of the, the teams that are at the top end of the division um, on their own patch at the moment. But Middlesbrough probably as good as anybody um, we've seen at home so far. Difficult game on Saturday, more difficult than I thought it was going to be after Middlesbrough lost um, lost a player to red card in the second half. But it deserved to win just again that little bit of class, that little bit of strength um, that Middlesbrough couldn't quite cope with.
0: Well, let's rewind to when we previewed this one at the back end of last week and you identified your one to watch, the player thing issue, whatever it might be to keep an eye on. Jed Spence was the one we picked out, Wondered Mm. if this was the game where he might come in or at least come off the bench. No sign of him yet, but it's probably a testament to the performance that Leeds put in and the form, the run of form that they're on, I suppose, to say that the fact that he didn't really feature isn't really a talking point at all because um, Archie Gray
1: had another fantastic game. Well, it's becoming quite interesting, isn't it? Because every time we speak about Spence, we reference the fact that at, at Forest, he was exceptional and the best right back in the division a right-back who, after he went to Spurs, anybody would have taken in the Championship if they could have got him on loan and made total sense when Leeds did sign him in the summer, partly because you could feel that, that Luke Aylin was probably getting closer to the, the end of the line. And and behind him, there wasn't necessarily anybody obvious to fill that slot, particularly if, if Sam Byron was going to play on the left. And I think the assumption has always been that once Spence was fit and if Spence could get, you know, even a short run of games, he would look good enough to, to keep his place. But you do start to wonder how it is that he's going to get into the team because although actually Gray hasn't been perfect at right back, I think he's been good enough and and very decent more often than not. And it was a kind of difficult start for him on Saturday. There was an awful lot of open space on his side of the field, which Middlesbrough exploited really early on, virtually with the, the first attack but he got his, his head together after that. And I think it's one of the things that's really impressive about Gray is that he he has already that level of maturity that in which he, he seems to be able to get over difficult moments of, of which that was one, you know, it wasn't particularly flattering defending. It didn't look great for him. It wasn't particularly great goalkeeping from, from Millie either in those circumstances, but Gray got better and better. And in the press conference afterwards, somebody said to me, who, who was your kind of man of the match today? And, on reflection, it, it probably was grey. actually. I thought in the end, yeah, had a really good and strong game that, that made a difference on that side. And I just think in the circumstances, why would Farka be making changes to this lineup? We, we spoke in the last podcast about the feeling more and more that you're starting to see now lead strongest 11 on the pitch. And I think in Farka's head, he would talk, managers always talk about squads rather than 11s. But I think he would see this as his strongest lineup at the, at the moment, his most dependable lineup, the one that he can have most faith in, and most trust in. And as the weeks go on and the results keep ticking over, it gets harder and harder to get into this lineup. And I think that will have implications for the January window as well. You know, the idea that players who are coming here will probably want to be told look, you, you will get minutes and you will get game time. And as it stands, I'm not really sure how you make them that promise. It's become a bit of a standing joke on the show about the, the 20 minute text, the 20 minute WhatsApp that
0: you, uh, you never, ever send me. You, you never actually signed up to this and never agreed it. We just, it's just become a thing.
1: And I'm not quite sure I, how. I, I'm I'm, cert- I'm absolutely certain I did it once, right. which is very much me. Yeah. Did it once, never did it again. But yeah, you on the other hand are quite loyal and faithful with this. Yeah.
0: Well, I actually texted you 10 minutes in and I just said 10 minute text, fucking hell um, on, on, <laughs> on Saturday. And you just put your, your crying laughing emoji, there were some swear words in there, and you predicted at that point, actually, 10 minutes in, that Leeds would win it. Um, and I responded with, could be 6-5 this, and pointing out, actually, that the very tidy Middlesbrough were leaving yeah. massive gaps as we attack, which is the which was my big takeaway from that sort of first 10-12 minutes. And you mentioned the gap down Gray's side initially, and then um, I think I left it there and then replied to you at half-time just saying, actually, it seems like we completely plugged that gap and both sides looking a little bit porous but hopefully we should have enough going forward. And that really was the, the tail of the tape, wasn't it? In the end, um, the attacking threat that Leeds posed versus Middlesbrough, It was enough to see us over the line, but I mean, you yeah, take us back to that first 10 minutes,
1: cause it was, it was wild again, wasn't it? I mean, like I was thinking, God, if it's going to be like this every week, can we cope? It's just wonderfully drunken football. And it was the same against Swansea as well. The first few minutes where you're sat there thinking, what, what is this all about? And, and why is it like this? But it's incredibly engaging and it's, it's great to watch. And, When we spoke to Farke afterwards, he was talking about Leeds playing a little bit too much with their emotions, about it all being a bit loose, about it needing to be a bit more controlled. And you can tell that there's part of him that doesn't want it to be like it was in the first 10 minutes against Middlesbrough, but there's part of him that loves it as well. He said, you know, I I don't want it to be football on sleeping pills. I I don't want it to be boring. I don't want it all to be completely regimented. You, You want to have a bit of a bit of life in the football. And let's be honest, I mean, Leeds are a club who do exist on emotion and sometimes emotion is all that Leeds have had to exist on. So I don't think there are many people who who would be complaining about that at all. It was fast and it was loose and it was chaotic in the first 10 minutes. But I genuinely felt as the half went on, Leeds really took a hold of it quite impressively again. With the dominant side, I think we're starting to make Middlesbrough wobble getting them a little bit rattled in a way that they, they kind of hadn't been up until the, the middle of the first half and it, it was only that late concession at the end of the first half I think that that put the game on edge after half time. when I messaged you at, at 2-1 saying you know I think Leeds win this I thought they would win it by a couple of goals you know I thought they would have it fairly comfortable in the end not because I wasn't impressed by but I thought they were good I thought Housen at 35 in their midfield still getting a tune out of him he was Great, really, for, from their point of view, probably their best player. And I don't know whether we'll see House and play at Ellen Road again, but still plenty of love for him around about leads. But I think that the second goal, the second Middlesbrough goal, obviously the corner itself, we've seen that a few times before. And again asked Farker about it afterwards. And he said it was something he wanted to go away and analyse because he, he made the point that it was previously Piro at the front post in those situations. It's now Byron and that change was made deliberately because of a previous concession. And it is a it is a slight weakness and I think a, a moment that makes you realise that it's not 100% perfect with Leeds, it's not like Farker is having it all his own way, but it is incredibly good um, as a whole. But the, I think the relevant point of that goal was what happened in the lead up to it. You know, where Leeds kind of go man for man when a team play out from the back, strike getting pulled miles upfield and suddenly Middlesbrough being able to, to get in behind and, and to force a corner. I think that was where Middlesbrough had most joy on Saturday was those little moments where they were able to do the press. They were able to turn leads and to what the press out that I think if you're going to fight fire with fire and and take leads on, that's what you have to do and that's what you have to do well. But again, just that element of quality in Leeds team that that meant that they had too much.
0: Yeah. I thought they were good at getting it both into and through midfield quickly and that unsettled us. One of the big things I I noticed from that. Hey, football analysis. (laughs) Let's go back to the start then and the opening goal. Melier beating at his near post. Do you blame him at all for that? Should he have done better with it or do you think he was unsighted? Because there was a guy in, in his eyeline, wasn't there, who looked to be in an offside position, but not that it matters, you know, come the shakedown.
1: Yeah, th- there was. Um, it's that, there's always the argument about near post goals. We, if you have a look on our website, there's a, a piece with Kasper Schmeichel that was done a long time ago when, when he was at Leicester. And, and he's a, an absolute advocate of the whole shouldn't get beaten at the near post being complete nonsense. From his point of view, you defend the goal here, there and everywhere. And there's nothing special about the near post. But convention has it, doesn't it, that you shouldn't really get beaten easily in that, that position. It wasn't by any stretch a, a bad finish. I think when I looked at the replays and looked at Millier's position. You thought he might have been able to to get closer to that. But the fault didn't really lie there. The the fault lay in the fact that there was a huge amount of space opened up on the left and not for the first time actually. Middlesbrough tried to find that a couple of times previously but nice ball out from house and and, and plenty to plenty of room in, in which to work. And then Gray obviously done on the, the cut back inside by um by Latti Lath. What was I think really encouraging was the, the quick reaction to that and the quick response and Leeds able lead's ability and you know being able to turn the dial very very quickly and to suddenly move Middlesbrough from thinking great start to being seriously under the cosh. I mean the the first goal in particular, the header from Dan James, was just the build up of pressure that eventually becomes too much. If you throw up that many chances in that short period of time, somebody is is going to score. And I think, you know, I think that goes down as a really valuable win. I think it's probably as valuable as most because Middlesbrough have been better than most sides who've come um, to Elland Road. But seven wins in a row at home is, you know, very, very significant. I think I, I, I do feel more and more that Leeds are quite unlucky to be as far adrift from the top two as they are at the moment because in a typical season, this would either either have you right on the fringes of it or or in the thick of it, if not top. Two points per game, like you say, you
0: just got to run your own race in this league, haven't you, and see where it takes you. When it gets to the end of the uh, end of the season, and just hope that the teams above we can keep clawing in that points total. But actually, just to, to that first goal, um, some really nice work by Sam Byram. I thought um, on the left to recycle that bit of play because Leeds had that chance just before it, didn't it? But then to work it down into that um, into that space, some really nice footwork, nice cross, and towering header from the big man at the far post.
1: Yeah. Uh, so one of the freelance journalists who was there with me in the press box turned to me after Somerville's goal, um, Somerville's header, and he said, it's not exactly the land of the Giants there, is it? But um, but it's the smallest players on the pitch are sticking them away. It was, it was a good jump by James. And I think in normal circumstances, if Middlesbrough are well set or are not quite on the run in the way that they were, then you would expect the, their centre-backs to absolutely dominate that situation. But it's the disarray in the end that becomes too great. I suspect it's easy to say this from a Leeds United perspective because the season's going well, but I'm not missing VAR at all in this league. I I think to take that first goal as an example, it's hard to think how many VAR checks or how many different things would probably have had to have been looked at in that process because there were so many opportunities. So who's on, who's off? Anything that's gone on, all your challenges in the box all being looked at. I do think the spectacle is vastly improved by the fact that you just don't have any breaks in play after these goals. And I think... You have to accept that that means that things like Peltier's challenge on James at Rotherham is going to be missed. I thought Leeds could have had a penalty uh, against Swansea on uh, on Wednesday night as well. I think that would have gone to VAR and, and would have been looked at. And as I say, easy to say this when things are going well generally, but I think I can cope without it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The
0: match-going experience, and that is that, is a real important thing to to stress, that it feels like VAR is a product of television and it absolutely destroys the match going experience. It's nice getting that, you know, that second cheer, but you hate the the fact that you you do have to dial back your celebrations to a certain extent. Thinking, well, they're going to go check this now and pour over everything in slow mo, and um, are we going to get this given? And then you get that second wave of of release when it comes around again. But it's a little bit like after the Lord Mayor's parade, isn't it? You want to just—I'd rather have the errors and have the flow of the match as it is in this league than the stop-start. Of VAR, I don't mind not getting some of the decisions. I don't mind some stuff being ruled out wrongly. If we can just say, yeah, human error is fine, but as I think it was, uh, you said that was it David Ornstein who wrote about it, sort of saying the the quest for perfection, this final five percent of decisions that weren't going right, the, the quest to try and get them correct has actually just ruined the whole spectacle. Anyway, and it's never going to be perfect because it still involves humans. I think it was Craft
1: and oh, craft, of, right. craft and craft is right about most things, damn him, but. It's the, the the kind of bounce of emotion, isn't it? It's the, the rapid hits that make a game like Saturday's after seven, eight minutes so intense and so engaging. You don't have any of the of the interludes. And you're talking there about the match-going experience. VAR was never made for match-going people. And you know that on the basis that when it was first introduced, you would sit in the stands and you would have no idea what was going on. It was okay for us because we tended to have television coverage in the press box. So you could see what the process was and you could look at the, you know, you could look at the, the situations and the events as the VAR was, was running through them. But you weren't getting any commentary and you weren't getting any audio. So you didn't actually know what they were discussing and, and how it was all shaping up. You can make your own judgments. And and more often than not, you were right about what was to come because you could see it with your own eyes. But it was never on the big screen in grounds from the outset. And that was not what it was about. So you had a kind of baffled crowd who quite often had no idea exactly what was being checked or what was what was going on. So, yeah, I, I just think it's been quite a relief, actually. We never write about VAR now. I don't think I've written about VAR at all this season. And perhaps there is a piece to be done about, is it better down here? Because you don't have it. Oh, absolutely. And you see that the errors are still there. I mean, look at the the Man City
0: Spurs game, the error that happened towards the back end of that game. And it's not something that VAR could have intervened on, but you're still at the mercy of humans, aren't you? And the, the increased amounts of pressure and I don't know, almost like granular level breakdown of the rule interpretation, whereas you just want a referee and, and the assistants to be able to go out there and make a decision and not have to second-guess themselves or maybe fall back on the option of having VAR as a comfort blanket in case they get something wrong. It just feels like the whole thing needs simplifying. And I think I suppose the semi-automated VAR offsides will help when that comes in because you accept the machine values, don't you? It's either off or it's on. It might confuse us at times, yeah, but... I see that. Well, yeah, but at least you you get the decision and it happens quickly and you move on. That's the end of it. You know, that yeah. the, the assistant will okay. get a notification like quickly in their ear, off or on. And then the game will more closely resemble the game that we're talking about. The one without this kind of stop-start, waiting for five minutes, drawing the lines and all that sort of stuff. Just simplifying the whole thing. But I felt like we're getting away from the, the, the brilliance. Yeah, of the...
1: I, I, I think to touch on the referee, I thought he was pretty good on Saturday, actually.
0: Well, that's was, that's was... interesting because when we when we sat and did the match ball, we all thought it was relatively poor and a little bit picky and inconsistent. I know people always think this about refs, but there were were elements like Ruta's yellow card, for example, he got booked for, for pulling back the guy who was going down the left. Whereas you'd seen Burra not penalized for exactly the same sorts of things. And I say this fully aware that he gave us a penalty, gave them what? One, two, three, four, five, six yellow cards to our two and sent a man off. So
1: I don't know. And I think, I think the point is that the game merited that there were a lot of hefty, hefty challenges that should have been booked. It was definitely a red card. There's no question about that as, as a second booking. But I also thought to, to look at the penalty, got that call right, having already given Leeds the, the kind of slight benefit of advantage in the sense that Leeds were going to get a shot off at that point and, and might have scored. And um, I think I, I kind of accept that in every game there are going to be errors and there are going to be mistakes. But I think overall that was... Quite a difficult game to keep on top of, quite a difficult game to to manage. I thought it was a, a pretty good performance, to be honest. Mm, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me have that one. So, so uh, just going back to the view from the press box, because this is what the show is all about. Um, seven minutes in, Somerville scores with that header. What is the view from the press box at that point? Uh,
1: are you all sort of saying, bloody hell, here we go again? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's mostly laughter and just kind of... Um, amusement at, at the way in which it's building up um, because I think Middlesbrough at home seem to have the potential for that I think less so Swansea on Wednesday night um, I don't think we expected it to go that way against Swansea at all so early on to be quite so so chaotic but I did think Middlesbrough would come in and be fairly expansive or, or at least try to have a go and give themselves a chance of winning the game which they did and I think Leeds definitely got away with one with that shot that hit the post. And I don't just mean on the basis that it was that close to going in. You know, it did look like they were going to concede there. But it it has to be said that with, with 10 men, they didn't really exploit that advantage particularly. And it wasn't as if they closed out the game by stifling Middlesbrough completely. Middlesbrough was still able to create those little moments where, you know, they were tempting the Leeds press to go tight and then spinning into space, finding ways around it. And that did look like for all the world, like that was going 3-3 at that point, which. In the circumstances, we'd have been an incredibly poor result. Yeah. You know, Patrick Parker would have been extremely disappointed with that. So no question at all that, that Leeds deserved to win the game, but that was a,
0: a little stroke of luck. Yeah, it shouldn't have gone anywhere near 3-3, should it? But that, that said, I mean, I, I mentioned on the match ball, I felt a degree of comfort in the fact that when the red card happened, I thought, yeah, we'll, we'll be capable now of hopefully mostly possessioning them to death, if you like, for want of a better phrase. And we, we did a lot of that towards the back end yeah. but we, we did sometimes get sucked into it particularly when we were attacking didn't we like we'd lose the ball in attacking positions and they'd break on us but that kind of took out the um, that, that midfield turn and spin that you were talking about there was a lot of kind of stuff on the half turn wasn't there in midfield which we've not seen from a lot of sides in this division but I, I think it kind of nullified that aspect of the game they were fine nicking it back off us in attacking positions and then breaking on us which is how that happened yeah. I think wasn't it but um, yeah I, I I was happier when they were down to um, down to 10 just to close out the thought on the goals then if we could Piru's goal Leeds get a penalty some ironic chance for Patrick Bamford from some quarters of the ground you know tongue in cheek and all that but um, he, he took it really well didn't he and that's how you got to take your penalties just smack him into the net Eminem
1: do you know some two ish or half past oneish when the players arrived I saw somebody walking into the tunnel with bleach blonde hair and I didn't get a chance to have a clear look at who it was but they were in Leeds training gear Quite, it was quite clearly a player and I was saying to myself, "Who's that? You know, I, I don't, I don't recognise that. I wondered if it was Mateo, Joseph, or or something. Just in the, the flash of flash of white hair. And when Bamford took his beanie off to come on in the second half on the touchline, you could definitely feel this ripple of kind of surprise and um, uncertainty from the crowd, who were doing the same. Where everybody's sitting saying, "Who's this? You know, it is actually Bamford that's got Bamford's name on on his back, but suddenly looks like Eminem on the touchline." As far as the penalty goes, it was a great take, really, really clinical, and I think that probably. I mean, Farka did say after Stoke, you know, that Pirro is our penalty taker, and that it would have been Pirro who had taken it had he been on the pitch, but obviously he'd been substituted by that point. I think looking at that on Saturday against Middlesbrough comprehensively answers the question of who should be taking them. You know, that was a that was absolute quality strikers finish that um, really clean, impossible for the keeper to save, even though he went the right way. I suppose what Flack needs to work out is behind him, who's best for it um, and who who should be taking it. I think, as we said previously, I see virtually no way in which Bamford can be given it now. It, it just makes absolutely no sense for for an awful lot of reasons. But yeah, it was um, it was good, and and I think something we should mention too is that there was that huge chance for Ritter in the second half, which would have completely killed the game. Should have taken it. It, it was a, a very good save from from Boris keeper, but he, he shouldn't have had the chance of stopping that. And awful refereeing, as we were establishing before, that terrible performance by uh, Darren
0: England did not recognise that he got a touch to it. Nah, uh-huh. nah, uh-huh. never mind it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it does, it does. It just takes the um, takes all the pressure out of the situation, doesn't it? That's one of the things that you kind of you wanted to scream at Bamford when he picked up the ball for the last penalty he took. Like, just give it to someone else because it, it just removes all the heat from the situation, all that pressure that's built up. And I know strikers like to prove a point, don't they? When they've if they've missed, they want to show that they've got the the cojones to uh, step up and do it again, but in having it in someone else's hands and I know Pirro had gone off at that point when Bamford took the penalty but it just uh, it removes all the anxiety that whether it's his teammates but predominantly the rest of the crowd has
1: and, and that's an important energy to harness isn't it I think sometimes I was back to that thing I think of you know square pegs and square holes and and yes like there are deficiencies in this Leeds team fairly minor ones I think you, you have to say but it, you know, what we've been saying about the press and the way in which you can play through it. I, I think there's probably a lesson there for teams who want to be brave enough to to do that against Leeds. But as a whole, they are incredibly well suited to this league. And I think it it kind of justifies the sense of going for Farka in the summer when I know the process had to be pretty expedited. I know Leeds weren't able to, to kind of play the field massively. And it helped that Farka was out of work because it wasn't as if they they had to go looking for somebody who was in a in another job. I was writing after the game on Saturday and about the fact that there was somebody external in the summer who was suggesting to leads. And this was after the point where they decided that they were going to go for FARC, but it suggested that, you know, Steve Cooper would be potentially a better option or someone they should look at. And although that sounds unrealistic because he's at Forest, Cooper seems like he's been on his last legs at Forest forever. You know, there just seems to be this weird thing around him of He's gonna go at some point and, and the club are waiting to sack him and nobody's quite sure when it's gonna happen and, and on it goes and on it goes. But the ladies were totally convinced by Farker's championships credentials, not least because of his record at Norwich, but also because of how recent it was. And if you went back over the you know the previous decade, there weren't many coaches who'd shown more of an ability to master the league than than he had. And because it was recent, you know, he he understood how Football was being played in the championship at the moment. You know, currently what the trends were, what this, the teams were like that you were you were going to come up against. It wasn't as if you were talking about somebody who'd won promotion from the league 15 years ago. And, and in that time, it had, it had changed. And I think he's shown, you know, from July onwards, the nous that you need to build a team who can strongly compete in this league. The signings have made sense. The signings have worked pretty much en masse. There are some that haven't really been tested. Um, seriously, like Gruev, as an example. And Anthony isn't getting too many minutes at the moment either. And, you know, spent still to, to come into the team. But those who've played regularly and those who've been in there have made a huge difference, Pirro being one. And that penalty, again, you have yourself... OK, he's not playing as a, a centre-forward, but you have yourself a, a nine-stroke ten who knows what to do in that situation and, and who you can rely on.
0: What I will say about the tactics is they, they sort of feel optimised, if that's the right word, for the players that we've got. You know, they, they make sense of Somerville, of James... Even of Piru, I know there are question marks about him dropping deep, but I really like what he does. I really like his link-up play, and I think a lot of it sails under the radar sometimes just because it's an obvious thing of dropping back, picking up the ball, laying it off. Not glamorous, but necessary in this side, and you see the speed at which we're able to to break on teams, and they call it transitional play, don't they now? And we are the number one team in the division for that, and he's a, a vital cog in that machine, I think, and it allows Rute the freedom to go do what Rute does, which is just, it's just great fun. I absolutely love watching him, both before during and after the games he just seems to be having such a nice time and as a result it's hard not to smile when you see how him having such a nice time
1: I'm going to write about the, the counter-attacking aspect of Leeds this week because it it is a it is a massive string to the bow and and again you know a little bit like the Bielsa era when they were very good at it too in a model which is based on possession Farker would, would like to dominate the ball as much as possible but you're right I think optimising is a, is a really good word in that he, he has looked at the squad realised how much pace is in it and told himself, we need to be making good use of that. And I don't think you can do that by just trusting that players who are quick are going to going to find space themselves. You have to create it for them. And when leads do break on teams, almost impossible to contain. Because of the movement, because of the speed, because they, they commit numbers going forward, it makes it very hard to know how to defend or where to defend for the best. And yeah, I just think it's it's all been logical. It's all been very sensible. And going back to the start, you can see why it is that Leeds have managed to put themselves in this position. Absolutely, and it's a position of strength.
0: That gap's starting to open up now between the top four uh, and the rest. A difficult game at Blackburn towards the weekend. Um, we will see if Leeds can break the the non-white kit. Who do if such a thing exists? It'll be the fruit salad kit, won't it? Um, against Blackburn. But we'll we'll preview that one towards the back end of the week, Phil. So we'll save the chat about that for then we just going to ask about the FA Cup third round draw, which has been oh, made. Oh, I thought you
1: might. Yeah. I, I thought you might,
0: yeah. And a nice easy trip for you on the train down to Peterborough on the East Coast main line. What about the game itself? Well, never mind the game itself. What is that
1: now? 13 away ties it's back a rec- to back. It's a record, baby. Record. Yes, it is. It is. And it's incredibly weird, isn't it? The last game they had at home against Rotherham, January 2016, I can remember, but only vaguely, and it does seem like a million years ago. And it is very, very odd how how this keeps happening. It's a winnable game. I don't think Farker will want... I mean, he certainly didn't um, make light of the League Cup games in August, even though he was really down on players. And even though there was all the justification, he needed to, to rest the better of them. He, he tended to go quite strong um, in the ties that the Leeds had, and I think probably do the same in the FA Cup as well. So who knows? Get through that. Fourth round at Ellen Road. Hurrah.
0: <laughs> what, in the replay? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at least there is a bit of space either side in terms of like, you know, Birmingham is New Year's Day and then you've got five days between that and the FA Cup tie at least, if not, you know, the Sunday perhaps. And then it's another week to Cardiff. So rather than having midweek matches to to contend with, there is the opportunity to just keep that momentum going, isn't there, I suppose? Because it's very, very important at this level. I think that's one of those things that even... Even though Bielsa's football was amazing, sometimes some of those stupid cup defeats, like I'm thinking Crawley, can just have a slightly disruptive effect, can't it? it can just confuse people and take the wind out of the sails just that little bit.
1: Yeah, it, the cup competitions were never good to Bielsa. They, Leeds never did, did particularly well in them. But at the time, the priority was so obvious prior to going up and afterwards. You know, it was it was Premier League survival over everything else after Leeds actually won promotion. It's not so different this time around. Yeah, you you you're right. And and the, the thing about the third round of the FA Cup is that it does kind of afford you the, the chance to to give it some proper thought because of the way it falls in the fixture list. As you go further on in the competition, it can and Leeds very rarely do, it has to be said, but you know, it, it can become more problematic to, to manage. I mean, you you do have to be careful with it though, because it was hard not to feel last season that in amongst a million things that didn't help Leeds and contributed to them going down, many of which were their own fault. The the injury to Rodrigo away at Accrington in a game that was already won was really, really bad timing and and took out the team for concerted period the one player who was scoring goals, you know, the one player who, who seemed to be delivering up front. So you do have to get the balance right and you do have to be careful that you don't take risks that you that you shouldn't. But again, to go back to the games in in August in the League Cup, there was absolutely no inclination on Farkas's part to go weak um in those games at all. And and while I do think he'll try to use what you might call fringe players away at Peterborough, because he does have actually good players who aren't really getting much of a game at the moment. It's not as if the players that he doesn't really want and are hanging about and he feels compelled to, you know, from time to time make it look as if they're going to get used. I think he does genuinely rate Gruev and Anthony and and others like that and will look to get them into the team, but it certainly won't be a weak side, I don't think. I've just had flashbacks to that Rodrigo
0: decision, which, I mean, people were kind of saying, mm, is this a good idea at the time? But Really, with the aid of hindsight, terrible management, that wasn't it? Using a player like that who was, like you say, the one bagging the goals that might have, you never know, been enough to to keep us up. But it doesn't matter because we're having a nice time this year, as we said. So um, we'll wrap up the show there, Phil. And hopefully this continues at the weekend when we travel over to Blackburn. Huge amount of fans are going to be traveling. Looking forward to seeing that one um, on the telly, hearing that one on on the telly as well.
1: They don't mind cashing in on this game, Blackburn, do they?
0: Not not at all. Not at all. Um, We'll have a chat about that towards the back end of the week, though. So enjoy the rest of your week, Phil. And we're off to the FSA Awards Monday tonight in London. So there'll be a break from uh, propaganda on Tuesday, but it will return on Wednesday when we've uh, cleared our heads a little bit. So fingers crossed we can bring home um, a victory from London, a a lesser spotted London London victory. That must be in the bag, surely. No, let's not be complacent, Phil. We're Leeds fans. We should know know better. Catch you at the end of the week. All right. Thank you. We'll see you soon. The Square Ball Podcast.